You're listening to an event from the U.S. Institute of Peace, part of the USIP Podcast Network. For more information about our work around the world, visit usip.org and check us out on social media. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, everyone, depending on where you're joining us from. My name is Gavin Helf, and I'm senior expert on Central Asia at the U.S. Institute of Peace. I'll be moderating today's discussion, and I'd like to thank you all, as well as our panelists, for taking time out of your busy schedules to be with us for this really interesting and timely discussion. I'd also like to thank our co-hosts for today's discussion, George Washington University's Central Asia Program and the American University of Central Asia's Social Innovations Lab. We invite all of you in the audience uh, to please take part in today's discussion by asking a question using the chat box function located just below the video player on the USIP event page. We ask that you please indicate your name and specify, and specify where you're joining us from uh, in your questions. And you can engage with us and each other on Twitter with today's hashtag USIP Central Asia. As many of you know, USIP was founded by the US Congress 35 years ago as an independent, nonpartisan national institute with the goal of preventing, mitigating, and resolving violent conflict. USIP's work in Central Asia is organized under the US State Department's C5 Plus One initiative, which provides a format for dialogue and a platform for joint efforts to address common challenges faced by the United States and the five countries of Central Asia. Our in-country activities focus on countering and preventing violent extremism in the region. USIP accomplishes this through working with governmental stakeholders, experts, civil society leaders, and youth from each country to share and promote best practices and approaches uh, to countering and preventing violent extremism in their communities at the national level and the regional levels. From DC, uh, we produce timely analysis and convene discussions like this on key drivers of, of the conflict uh, and stability in Central Asia. As one of these uh, initiatives in 2020, USIP partnered with our co-hosts today uh, to conduct a study on the emergence of Muslim civil society in Central Asia uh, and the role they play in their communities. The research, which has included dozens of interviews with civil society representatives from Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, and Uzbekistan, culminated in a USIP PeaceWorks report that was published in December of 2021. The report examines the types of Muslim civil society organizations in the region, their linkages and relations with state structures, and how Western donors and practitioners can better tap into their potential. It found that the region's Muslim civil society organizations are highly diverse in terms of activities and structures, often politically moderate and supportive of democracy, and importantly, open to working with global development actors. We are thrilled uh, today to have the co-authors of this study with us uh, to present the findings of their report. Sebastian Payrose, research professor with the Central Asia Program at George Washington University, and Emil Nasruddinov, associate professor of anthropology, technology, and international development at American University of Central Asia. Following the presentation, we will have a moderated question and answer session where we will be joined by Indira Aslanova, the UNESCO Chair of World Culture and Religions at Kyrgyz Russian Slavonic University in Bishkek, and USIP's own Palwasha Kakar, 
who leads our Religion and Inclusive Societies program. Uh, but before I hand it over uh, to Sebastian and Emil, I want to take a moment to recognize a colleague of ours, uh, Richard Stoddard, who passed away suddenly last month. Rick was a senior advisor with the State Department's Office of the Coordinator of U.S. Assistance to Europe and Eurasia. His guidance and support were critical to the launch of this program, this research, our program, and I think to the success of U.S. assistance in Central Asia for decades. Rick was an advocate for Central Asia in the policy community through good times and bad times. Our thoughts are with his family, with his colleagues, and friends during this really difficult time. And with that, I'd like to hand it over to Sebastian and Emil. Sebastian? Thank you. Thank you very much, Kevin. Uh, before starting, I just would like to thank the USIP and Kevin. I mean, we're really uh, grateful to them for their support in our work and for the opportunities that you gave us to publish this report on this topic, which we think is very important. So, uh, yes, I mean, in the three decades uh, since the fall of the Soviet Union, Muslim civil society has developed uh, significantly in Central Asia. Uh, but uh, despite this development, in contemporary discussions on the future of the region and on the social cohesion in the region, the role of the Muslim civil society uh, is often ignored because we lack information or even avoided due to political concerns, both by Central Asian uh, political authorities and by the international community. Uh, actually, Muslim civil society is often suspected of uh, contributing to the development of political Islam, and it is suspected uh, of possible ties to radical or terrorist elements. So one of the goals of our report and of our work is to go beyond an overgeneralizing approach regarding the Muslim civil society. Like secular civil society, Muslim civil society I would say is of variable geometry. So we highlight diversity of Muslim civil society in the region. I mean, the diversity of uh, its actors, the diversity of its goals, the diversity of its methods. And second, we underline the necessity to take more into account the impact of the emergence of an indigenous Islamic uh, oriented path towards development. And uh, the in Central Asia, the growth of inequalities has been a fertile ground for the development of Muslim uh, civil society organizations. So Emir is going to talk more precisely on who are these actors. But before Emir goes into these details, what I would like to say is that many Muslim CSOs describe themselves as being engaged in charitable work designed to help individuals and families experiencing social difficulties. They conduct their charitable initiatives in the name of the Islamic principle of Irsan, which uh, requires Muslims to uh, provide assistance to needy people, in, uh, for example, through the zakat, which is a form of almsgiving that requires people to contribute a percentage of their wealth, which is about usually 2.5%. 
Central Asian Muslim civil societies are often also uh, so conduct charity activities that target particular groups or causes, or for example, with the COVID-19 pandemic, for example, to mitigate the economic impact of the crisis through uh, financial support to the most vulnerable families or to provide medicine to people affected by the pandemics. By the pandemic, sorry. The second major pillar of Muslim civil society engagement consists of development activities of the kind uh, actually conducted by secular and other religious uh, CSOs. Uh, this is when absolutely not specific to Central Asia. I mean, the growing number of Muslim CSOs engage in development rather than charity reflects a more general shift in Islamic economic thought across the Muslim world. Uh, whereas Islamic economies in the 1960s emphasized the concept of redistribution as a foundation of social justice and Islam, uh, the notion of social justice has slipped progressively into a concept of equal opportunity instead of economic equality of equal income. So this has led Muslim CSOs to increase their efforts to help people become economically independent on the assumption that fostering self-reliance and economic empowerment is better than leaving people uh, dependent on charity. Uh, so uh, our interview, interviews revealed, I mean, several main sectors of uh, development work, uh, development work that includes uh, education. Uh, another very important area of engagement is economic. Some Muslim CSOs aim to stimulate uh, economic development by supporting the creation of new jobs or new uh, Islamic companies and startups, attaching uh, piety to efficiency and professionalism. Another main area of activity is uh, conducting uh, is contributing, sorry, to the maintenance of urban infrastructures, for example, constructing irrigation facilities, paving roads, etc. And of course, several interviewees said that they considered uh, charity and development not as polar, polar opposites, but as two sides of the same coin, and noted that their uh, organizations intentionally combine the two types of activities. Uh, an interesting point is that uh, several Muslim CSOs we interviewed uh, did raise concern about the potential for individuals to be radicalized or recruited by terrorist groups and asserted that Muslim CSOs could assist uh, governments in preventing radicalization, particularly by promoting uh, moderate messages, by strengthening education, or by societal issues that could make people uh, more vulnerable to recruitment by radical groups. So, uh, and another point is that uh, most Central Asian Muslim CSOs we interviewed uh, described their activities as, of course, an expression of their religion. So they stressed uh, the importance of working within their local culture and traditions, including so religion. Uh, and many considered that Islam provides a strong basis for responding to local issues and 
to build a strong and uh, vibrant civil society. But uh, while uh, religion is in many instances uh, an important and determining factor in Muslim collective action, uh, it's not on, uh, always the only or the most important factor. I insist on this because uh, by focusing on religion, uh, we run the risk of reinforcing exceptionalist views of Muslim civil society organizations as something basically and fundamentally different than all the kinds of civil society organizations, which is not necessarily the case. I mean, the role of the Muslim civil society in Central Asia has much in common with the rest of civil society in terms of, uh, of a desire to help civil society and to act as a channel for relaying societal views, sorry, and concern to the government based on the belief that uh, civil society has uh, deeper grassroots knowledge on local contexts and of where there may be gaps in what the government is providing. So uh, this means that uh, the views between the governments and Islamic civil society organizations may be different. I mean, we had many Muslim CSOs who, uh, which expressed a range of criticisms about the current economic and social situation in their country, both on a moral and material level. They denounced what they viewed as, uh, for example, the moral wrongs in Central Asian society, for, including uh, corruption of the political authorities that they deemed incompatible with the values of Islam. Uh, second, uh, many uh, civil society organizations, uh, uh, organizations identify economic and social issues that they believe need to be addressed, which includes education, health, uh, or, for example, the sole issue of unemployment. Uh, several Muslim CSOs highlighted a perceived lack of state commi commitment or even inaction of the state in uh, several uh, social sectors. That being said, a Muslim CSO's criticism leveled against political authorities are often more of a call for increased dialogue and cooperation between the state and civil society, including in its Muslim components. So many Muslim CSOs call on uh, the political authorities to allow more political and civil freedom in the country, including by opening space for more society organizations to engage. But a huge majority of those we interviewed recognize the state as an, uh, as an important, if not indispensable, force with its financial capacity and decision-making uh, capacity. So uh, to conclude, uh, uh, I mean, please don't get us wrong. An important point is that we don't deny the fact that uh, there are certainly groups that support radical or even possibly violent agendas. But what we mean, what we want to show with this report is that many are more moderate and do not necessarily directly challenge uh, the political, uh, the secular political system. I mean, the diversity of the Muslim civil society in Central Asia goes, I, I think, against a tendency 
policy, both by the Central Asian governments and those in the West to view Muslim CSOs stereotypically as an homogeneous group of organizations focused mainly on fundamentalist religion. Instead, again, Muslim CSOs have very diversified objectives, working methods, uh, and relations with the governments, views about the international communities, and view on uh, national and foreign policy. So we think it's really essential to inquire about the full spectrum of the moral, ethical, uh, community, social role of Islam, rather than focusing strictly on its political, ideological role in Central Asia and on its possible links to violent extremism or terrorism. And uh, last word is that uh, Muslim CSOs are we think likely to be increasingly important actors in, uh, in Central Asia. I mean, for Western policymakers, as well as for governments in the region, understanding how and why Muslim CSOs work, how they interact, interact with local communities, and how they view their role in connection with the governments and other entities can help inform possible cooperation with them. So there are, of course, potential obstacles to working with Muslim CSOs in Central Asia, including concerns about vetting for possible connections again to radical groups or local uh, government uh, regulations or working methods which may not readily match donor requirements but Muslim CSOs have the potential to bring their local connection and knowledge to bear in making policies and uh, programs particularly those uh, concerning development and social assistance more effective and I'm going to stop here thank you Okay, and uh, now we'll hand it over to Emil. Emil. Um, thank you very much, uh, Sebastian. Thank you very much, Gavin. Um, yes, I would like to carry on uh, with what uh, Sebastian has started. He summarized the key uh, theoretical and empirical insights from the study, and I'm going to uh, briefly describe uh, six types of uh, Muslim civil society organizations that we reviewed it in our report um, and from the very beginning uh, i will say that uh, this list is not exclusive right and there are uh, several other types of muslim civil society organizations like uh, islamic political parties or um, various types of uh, voluntary islamic associations and organizations uh, but uh, for, for, for different reasons, we decided to focus on uh, these uh, six, right? And uh, these six uh, types of organizations can be uh, broadly uh, divided into um, the formal and uh, informal organizations, right? The list of formal organizations in our study includes Muftiyats, uh, Islamic charity foundations, and Islamic NGOs. And the informal um, civil society organizations includes um, include mosques, uh, mahallas, and uh, various uh, types of jamaats. Uh, and so uh, it is um, um, probably the, the most um, um, straightforward conclusion that we get from this comparison, right, is that the, the more formal um, organizations are better structured, better organized, and they also work more like in the top-down uh, direction, while the uh, less formal uh, organizations um, uh, are more natural, more authentic, better connected to specific localities, but also work from uh, bottom up, right? And they're more grassroots organizations than the uh, formal organizations. So if you go to 
to the formal ones, right? The first on the list is uh, muftiyats, right? Or, spiritual boards of uh, Muslims in various countries. Uh, they constitute the governing bodies over Islam. They exercise control over mosques and all Muslim worship places. Also over the theological approach and worship practice of the clergy. Um, some of them also regulate the appointment of imams. Um, and also they have um, departments that look after the religious education in the country. Um, but um, what is interesting is that the Muftiyat's status as Islamic civil society organization is somewhat ambiguous, right? Because on one hand, Muftiyat's cannot be state institutions, uh, considering that all Central Asian states are secular. Um, Yet muftiyats are largely right, in all of our countries, uh, Central Asian countries, monitored by the state administration and often cooperate closely with um, other state bodies such as uh, committees for religious affairs, uh, ministry or ministries of internal affairs or, and various uh, security services. Um, also, muftis are often appointed with the informal approval of the country's presidents. Um, if we look at the charitable and philanthropic activities of muftiyats, these are quite significant and funding mostly comes from um, uh, the collections of Sadaq al-Fitr, right, uh, during the um, Eid celebrations, uh, but also um, from the organization of annual Hajj. Uh, the second type uh, is uh, Islamic charity foundations. Uh, main function is to collect and distribute uh, resources. Uh, there are local foundations, but uh, there are even more international foundations, many of which are based in the Arab world, particularly in Saudi Arabia, Qatar, and Kuwait, but there are also a number of uh, foundations that come from Turkey. Uh, perhaps the most common type of activity is the construction of mosques, and this has been the case uh, particularly in the 90s and early in 2000s. Uh, but now things are changing a little bit. Uh, well, once the mosques are built, uh, usually these foundations simply pass them to the local communities and have little control over activities inside the mosques. Uh, but uh, besides constructions of mosques, and particularly um, uh, from mid-2010s, um, and in the context of what was happening in uh, the Middle East, more uh, and with the more sort of uh, control from the state institutions, uh, these uh, foundations are more likely to engage in various types of social projects than in the construction of mosques, right? And this includes building schools and hospitals, helping orphanages and poor families, organizing Easter dinners. And so this uh, social, uh, yeah, and, and um, yeah, uh, in Kyrgyzstan, for example, uh, these Islamic foundations built nearly 70 uh, secular public schools and a great number of medical facilities. Um, orphans nowadays in the country receive more support from these Islamic foundations than they receive from the government. And in uh, uh, they, in Kyrgyzstan, the foundations also built like nearly 20 uh, mini towns for like 80 to 100 socially vulnerable families. And they also uh, engage as Sebastian mentioned various uh, infrastructural projects such as, uh, for example, bringing water for drinking and irrigation to rural communities. The third type is Islamic NGOs. 
This is probably the most diverse sector of Muslim civil society in Central Asia. Uh, their status runs from official to semi-official to underground, and uh, they may be uh, locally based, national or international. And their sizes and uh, structures also vary from just a few individuals to dozens of staff. And their sources of funding are also quite diverse. Right? And the NGOs are quite uh, innovative in terms of how they find sources uh, of funding. Uh, so some Islam Islamic NGOs became quite well-known in the region, such as Agahan Foundation or uh, Mutakalim. Uh, yet many Islamic NGOs also uh, try to keep a low profile or even operate underground because of the uh, fear of political authorities. Uh, they engage in uh, all kinds of uh, social projects, uh, from supporting women's rights, teaching them Islamic subjects, and offering places for women to socialize, uh, to, like, for example, in Uzbekistan, was NGO, NGO was advising people to to stay away from radical Islamic groups. Another NGO fundraised money for sick children and provided assistance to orphanages. Yet another one provided Muslims with assistance um, for developing their businesses and helped them finding invest investors. And there are several NGOs that uh, were helping um, local communities to fight COVID uh, pandemic. Um, so now if you go into the uh, less formal um, civil society groups, we start with mosques. Uh, the number of mosques all across Central Asia has significantly increased. Um, almost all settlements has nowadays at least one mosque. And mosques are places uh, where people um, pray mostly, right? But also where they discuss issues facing their community. Uh, they have capacity to mobilize people for social events and activities, and they also engage in various charitable actions and distribution of food and clothing. Um, also, mosques often serve as unofficial madrasas, where children from a very small age are sent by their parents to study mostly reading and memorizing the Quran. Um, they can also become places for various jamaats that I will describe in a minute um, to get together and engage in their daily activities. And finally, mosques are also important places for socialization, right? Uh, it's where people chit chat after and before prayers. And um, thus, we can see that both geographically and socially, mosques often become the community center for local neighborhoods. Right? And so this local neighborhoods, right, or mahalas, right, is another uh, phenomenon, another special type of Islamic civil society. It's an old Central Asian urban concept that describes a neighborhood that has set uh, boundaries and usually has its own unique name. Uh, mahalas were always more prevalent among the historically more settled Central Asian people, such as Uzbeks and Tajiks. Um, and in many uh, cities today, it's still a very important element of traditional urban fabric. Um, and Mahala is not only a bounded territory, but also a place that has a specific atmosphere within the community, united by certain principles, ethics, and association within one another. And uh, mosques in the physical and social uh, sense often become the centers of Mahalas. Uh, Mahalas constitute a community of bonds between the members during uh, various uh, life cycle rituals and events. Uh, they also organize ashars. Uh, this is uh, like events when community gets together for cleaning the neighborhoods, uh, repairing the roads, building houses, um, in harvesting crops. And um, in Uzbekistan, they're also perceived as a structure of government control over the population. Uh, while in uh, Tajikistan and southern uh, Kyrgyzstan, they're much uh, less under the control of the states and mainly operate as community-based voluntary organizations. 
And finally, uh, the sixth type of uh, informal civil, uh, Islamic civil society we look at is uh, jamaats. Uh, it's an Arabic word that describes a group. Uh, but for this report, we use the term to identify certain groups that represent specific Islamic movements, um, either local or more often actually foreign uh, or foreign origin. Uh, so some of the most popular jamaats in Central Asia include groups of Turkish origin, such as Hizmet, Nurjular, Sulaiman Chiler, uh, groups of Indo-Pakistani origin, and uh, some of the Saudi um, origin, various uh, Salafi groups, for example. And uh, some of uh, these groups, like Hizmet, Nurjular, or certain uh, Salafi jamaats, receive uh, foreign fundings. Others, like Tablighi Jamaat, are completely uh, self-reliant in terms of funding. In most Central Asian countries, these groups were uh, popular um, in the 90s and early 2000s, but uh, then were banned and now have either ceased their activities or operate secretly. Um, Kyrgyzstan is an exception, though, as many Jamaats banned in other Central Asian countries are still uh, quite uh, illegal here. Right? And uh, Jamaats target different layers of population. For example, Tablighi Jamaat is more popular among the poor, while Hizmet, which operates through a network of expensive private schools and is more likely to attract the middle and upper middle class people uh, <coughs> than the, the poor community. And so um, such groups aim to help their own members in many ways. Um, for example, engagement in groups like Tablighi Jamaat is particularly known for helping people to overcome various forms of addiction, including alcohol and drug use. Um, other groups like Hizmet help their members with uh, professional career development, um, help them obtaining jobs, uh, develop businesses, or access public services. Um, and secondly, and perhaps uh, very importantly, uh, that most of these groups are also involved in various forms of dawah, right? spreading the message of Islam. And finally, in addition to their religious activities, Jamaats are also engaged in various kinds of uh, charitable or uh, development work. So uh, this basically briefly summarizes like the um, uh, six main types of NGOs that we looked at our report. As like once again, uh, this is not an exclusive list. Uh, there are other types of NGOs that we can um, discuss. Uh, but let me stop for uh, now um, in the interest of time. Thank you. So we see that it's a very rich um, fabric, um, very difficult to put into any one box. But I did want to dive a little bit um, in um, on the question of the role uh, of the state in the development uh, of these and the relationships with the state. So Indira, um, the Central Asian states all chose a secular form of government when they became independent from the Soviet Union. And on the one hand, they've struggled with a counterterrorism approach that sometimes has been aggressive towards Islam and any religious expression. On the other hand, um, many of these politicians individually in the states themselves have embraced Islamic identity by building state-sponsored Islamic institutions like mosques, um, celebrating you know, um, tradition with, with festivals um, and the religion's role historically in, in nation building. Um, how has the relationship between the state and Islam in Central Asia developed over the last few decades, Indira. Yeah, thank you, Gavin. <clears throat> First of all, let me thank Yusuf for the for event organizing and all the work that you are doing on peace building in the region. And also 
um, Emil and Sebastian for conducting this research and giving the different angle for the politicized and quite securitized uh, topic um, that used to be in, uh, in the Central Asia. Um, and yes, the role of the charity and, um, and development assistant cannot be overemphasized in terms of how religions work on this before and still historically they uh, patronized poor houses, houses for elderly, hospitals, schools, universities, some correctional facilities. And in terms of the post-Soviet approach uh, to religion, it was usually uh, recognized as an essential part of the ideology and that something that should be under the control by the state and which creates a lot of stereotypes and prejudice towards their role in the society. So, and I guess the importance of this research was to uh, to present a different angle on the issue and to show how um, these historically um, inherent activities uh, have developed in the Central Asia and what kind of capacity the uh, religious organization, uh, civil, Muslim civil society organization have in peace building. So as for the um, state and um, Muslim civil society organizations, if we rely to the um, uh, definition that uh, Emil gave and what kind of organization is there. So uh, as for now, and I will more rely to the Kyrgyz experience, sorry, um, we can say that this, uh, uh, there is a positive progress during the last decades. And yes, this is sometimes even really contradictory experience, but reality is that all Central Asian countries have preferences to Islam and recognize it as a traditional religion and officially or non-officially provide some sort of the support for the Islamic, uh, or let's say Muslim uh, organizations. And of course, it wasn't the case all the time. Um, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, most countries uh, set out to ensure this freedom of religion, equal rights and opportunities for the members of the different religions groups. But over the time, this uh, the policy began to change towards greater control, state control, um, especially uh, <clears throat> over so-called destructive movements or extremist movements. And um, a number of the organizations that before was legitimate, uh, let's say, as a Hizbut Tahrir and others uh, then were identified as um, extremist organization. There was, um, there was uh, attempts to limit so-called Salafi, gr Salafi groups, Salafi Jamaats. And at the same time, this so-called traditional Islam, uh, and there is a different understanding in different uh, Central Asian countries and even in different communities, what is this traditional uh, Islam, has become to seen as a constructive alternative for the, um, to the influence, uh, from the influence of so-called this non-traditional religious movements and extremism. And, um, but ironically, this uh, trend to countering extremism uh, has increased the cooperation of both state and 
um, civil society, Muslim civil society organizations in the country, and also like international donors. So I'm more now speaking about this huge peace building, countering and preventing violent extremism funds that the Central Asian countries received, and where the religious actors, uh, formal, non-formal, were seen as a, a great actor to uh, to have an access for the vulnerable groups to provide this counter alternative narratives to the uh, countering violent extremism and still like um, still like if we will just take the uh, state committee for religious affairs in Kyrgyzstan uh, every uh, activity is uh, done with the uh, invitation representation of the Muslim majority there and um, uh, the, the last uh, uh, state policy in religious realm emphasized the role of the uh, of the religious organizations uh, and uh, in the charity, in the social work, in the um, uh, working with the vulnerable groups. But still, I have to say that there is the obvious preferences within the state policy uh, to them and in the practice to the Islamic groups, but. Um, just to compare, if uh, non-Islamic organ uh, civil society organization will conduct charity work or um, work uh, have some social work, it will be recognized as uh, uh, conducting proselytism. So it's not like with the Muslim groups. Um, and at the same time, it's true what it was highlighted in the report about the certain level of distrust to the Muslim civil society organizations. Um, and uh, here, from my perspective, it's more emotions and um, emotions of um, some kind of fear when the, uh, the, the Islam state or religious uh, identity is more in the public space now and it's visual and there is some fear to to lose this um, usual way of life, uh, to think about that this is a strong Islamization that's going on. And I'm glad that the reports to some extent uh, dispel these stereotypes around, uh, around the work of the Muslim civil society organizations. And to conclude, um, generally speaking, all the civil society organizations, let's say like all NGOs, regardless of form of establishment and affiliation, uh, is now um, experiencing difficulties uh, in the countries. One is blamed for receiving funds from the, and influence from the West. Another one is blamed for receiving influence and funds from the East. So speaking of uh, West and East, I, uh, I'd like to kind of look at this question of how um, Muslim civil society in Central Asia is like or not like Muslim civil, Muslim civil society in uh, other parts of the world. Uh, Paul Washa, I want to turn to you. Um, while Muslim civil society may be a new thing in Central Asia, it's not a new thing in much of the rest of Asia or the Middle East. Uh, most civil society as such in say Bangladesh or Indonesia is just naturally Muslim. Um, how does Central Asia look to you uh, in a comparative perspective? 
Thank you, Gavin. I really appreciate this opportunity to, to talk about um, Muslim civil society in Central Asia, uh, given our work that intersects with a lot of this, uh, this study. Um, not we have a work that we do on a religious landscape mappings that looks at the political economy of religion and how um, different uh, religious organizations and groups and institutions and ideas um, intersect with peace building in different countries, as well as another project that um, we will discuss this in a month we'll probably have the report out uh, called Closing the Gap, which is looking at global trends and challenges to protecting the promotion of freedom of belief or religion. And um, we actually, one of the case studies was looking at Uzbekistan. So I'll bring some of those uh, into um, my conversation today. One thing is I want to start off by agreeing with Sebastian that Muslim civil society in Central Asia is not unique. Um, we do see civil society, faith-based civil society organizations across the world, and we do see Muslim civil society organizations that have popped up uh, you know, over time. In fact, we can even go to the definition of civil society that Catherine Marshall at the Berkeley Center who leads the work on religion and global development brings where she says by some measures and definitions, religion is itself uh, a, a non-governmental organization or um, civil society organization. And so, um, you know, it, it's even thinking about what religion does itself can lend itself to that, um, that own uh, the definition of what is civil society and civil society organizations. The second thing I wanted to mention is that the report and Sebastian both stated that the diversity that's documented is very healthy um, in, in Central Asia. And it really leads towards um, many indicators for resilience against violent extremism. And so I think that's something that's really important to highlight, that this diversity, that it's not reliant in, um, solely on um, foreign movements or foreign powers, that there is local diversity and healthy diversity, it's really important to building community resilience um, in terms of having Muslim civil societies in Central Asia, and that's something I wanted to highlight. Um, and then in terms of, of uh, what Emil said that supports that, that this diversity, there are some international organizations, but the, the, the diversity there is really important in terms of the roles that civil society has been, Muslim uh, uh, civil society organizations have been able to play. Now, I'll bring some of my own perspectives uh, to this conversation. I myself being Afghan and American, um, both seeing on the Afghan side where there's a huge reliance on uh, international um, support for faith-based organizations and faith-based civil society. We see the path that that's led where there is a lot of um, international um, you can say uh, interference, um, and there's a lot of skepticism in terms of the roles that these faith-based organizations can play because of the international interference and how they're seen to align with various movements, whether it's aligning with Iran or whether it's al aligning with Turkey or, or Turkic pan-nationalism or whether it's aligning with uh, various Arab countries and states in terms of their perspectives and how uh, their work somehow affects it. And what I've seen in terms of this report, it shows that there is much more diversity in Central Asia where that kind of reliance doesn't exist as much uh, and, and that kind of interference then can't take as strong root, which again gets back to the point that I mentioned about um, resiliency uh, against in international interference, but also against violent extremism. 
One thing I did want to mention was that I think it would be good in this conversation for us to compare faith-based development and charity organizations in general with Muslim CSOs, because I think that if we get to a more general sense of what is faith-based charity organizations, what are faith-based CSOs, um, and we, we will come to an understanding that this is not you know, something unique or new or something that should be feared in Central Asia. Asia, but this is something that we know across the board that other um, faiths also have, uh, have do this work and have done this for centuries in, in many countries um, that really fill the gaps where uh, government cannot reach or is unable to reach uh, in, in terms of social development in communities. The other issue that was raised is a, is a little bit in terms of bringing in the issue of secular CSOs or civil society organizations um, and comparing that with uh, fears towards uh, Muslim-based CSOs versus not having as much fear towards secular CSOs as long as they are apolitical and do not get involved in political issues. Um, so I think that you know teasing that out a little bit in the conversation may be helpful in terms of understanding the role CSOs play and how um, there's a lot of commonalities between faith-based CSOs and uh, secular CSOs in, in um, Central Asia. Um, uh, the other thing I think is really important here, and I and I want to continue to reiterate, is that this this healthy, homegrown sense of civil society in Central Asia is really important. Or as Sebastian mentions, indigenous civil society organizations in Central Asia is really important in terms of being able to both meet the demands of the people, but also uh, being able to remain independent uh, and uh, from ties to international movements and, and also remain resilient. Um, so uh, I mentioned a little bit about the definition uh, that uh, you know faith-based organizations in many ways can be way that religion itself functions, but there are different terms that have been used in this field. We talk about faith-based organizations or faith-inspired organizations, and they're more organized, uh, generally uh, legally constituted entities and involved in various different ways. They have with faith or religious beliefs that are intrinsic to the organization's inspiration and character. Um, and the civil society aspect is stressing their civic and social purposes and citizens' roles in the creation and management. So, you know, in terms of the debates, what is really the difference between the secular and the faith? Um, you know, where uh, is there some sort of a faith DNA in how these two differ? It's often debated. Um, and, and in terms of particularly on the outcome side, we see that the work in, in, in the social sphere, um, their civic and social purposes are very uh, similar. Um, and uh, the issue I think here is whether there is an overt religious dimension. And what we hear in Central Asia and from your report is that oftentimes the religious dimension is downplayed and it is more the civic and social purposes that are uh, played. Um, and one other thing uh, you know, to continue to know is to look for where there are links to um, the indigenous community, the communities locally, uh, 
being homegrown in terms of, uh, of, of providing these social services and, and filling these gaps versus those that are connected with larger international movements and organizations. And, and we see less and less of that. And I think that's something um, to look at. And even uh, with what um, Emil noted is, for example, with some of the Jamaats that even though they may have uh, roots internationally, they're also um, now locally funded and self-reliant. And, and, and that's something that's really important to look at in terms of the difference between how international movements um, function with um, civil society organizations and, and locally they function. Um, so that's those are some of the things I wanted to highlight. Um, the uh, two things that I've noted uh, to compare with other countries in the region, I was talking about Afghanistan, but also we can look at other Muslim countries, is the connection with the pan-Turkic movement, and so connection to um, Turkish roots, uh, you know, whether it's the Sulaymaniyah uh, type uh, madrasas, or whether it's the Turkic schools, like was mentioned with the Hizmet, and how that's related to this pan-Turkic identity and Muslim identity that's pan-Turkic is something to, um, to look at. But uh, the other issue is looking at the connections with the Brotherhood, and oftentimes um, Muslim civil society, there's this fear that they are related to Islamist organizations that are connected with the Brotherhood, somehow loosely or, or more intrinsically connected, and that that can then lead to political upheaval. But what we're seeing so far with this report is that, that um, you know, there isn't as much of a connection, and that connection um, it has become less and less. Uh, so you know, that's something to compare to other countries where a lot of these Muslim civil society organizations are more intrinsically connected to uh, brotherhood, either directly um, connected to those structures or loosely connected to those structures, as we might see in how Tunisia would define um, their civil society movement, their, their religious uh, Islamist civil society movements there. Um, uh, so those are some of the major things. Now I want to turn to uh, our study that I think has some uh, important results. We collaborated with uh, USAID Center for Faith-Based and Neighborhood Partnerships to study the relationship between religious freedom uh, or belief and regime-tied political stability and economic development. Um, the initiative we called was Closing the Gap, and it consisted of two complementary strands of research. One, which was cross-national quantitative analysis, and the other was a qualitative set of case studies based on interviews and focus group discussions, and that included Uzbekistan. Um, so the first strand, we looked at data on um, violations of religious freedom, political stability, economic growth in 167 states from 1990 to 2014. And the data sets were um, from the religion and state data set housed at Barlong University, the Pew, Re Pew Research Center's Global Restrictions on Religion data set, and the varieties of democracy project data managed by the University of Gothenburg's Department of Political Science. And then, as we mentioned before, the second strand was of case studies where we looked at Uzbekistan, as well as Sri Lanka, Sudan, South Sudan, and Venezuela. And they, we looked at them because they represented different levels of, of freedom of religion or belief um, in the in the you know in the field. So it was like a, a diversity of those relationships between the state. 
And um, the analysis that we came to, it generally supports the view that freedom of religion or belief and democracy are related. Um, and although it cannot, we cannot say that one causes the other, um, or if the relationship is mutually reinforcing. But what the analysis finds is a positive and significant correlation between religious freedom and a variety of democracy measures. And I think that's really important here because in the report on Central Asia, we're looking at civil society and democracy um, and the relationship between the two, as well as development. Now on the development side, we don't have any clear indicators, but uh, we do have indicators between democracy and development. And so if we say religious freedom is positively correlated to democracy there then can links them to positive GDP and development in that sense. And our findings were that, um, uh, like I mentioned, freedom of religion and belief correlates positively and significantly with democracy. But secondly, that some types of violation of religious freedom correlate positively and significantly with political instability. So violations of religious freedom means political instability. And third, um, the analysis showed that no statistically significant correlation between religious freedom of belief and economic development. We couldn't find anything um, there. But what we, we concluded is that uh, more effective um, integrative policies and programs that promote religious freedom and a broader democracy is important. Uh, and so I think this finding really correlates with um, the, the paper on Muslim civil society organizations in Central Asia that are working on um, democracy because uh, you know, in terms of the recommendations, we're, we're saying the same thing, that working with these kinds of organizations can broader democracy promotion, can help um, uh, societies at that level, and there shouldn't be a fear of working with this diversity, um, uh, particularly as it relates to um, limiting religious freedoms. It should not be limiting religious freedoms in the state. So I'll end here, and I look forward to the conversation. Thank you. Great. Actually, that... Um... You know, uh, one of the things that's very unique about Muslim civil society in Central Asia is, by definition, given the the uh, the history of these countries, it's it's new. It's a new phenomenon, uh, largely still organic. And um, while we've seen some hints of it being connected to a broader um, outside world, it really is quite local. We, it's you know, I, I have a, a, a question for Emil and Sebastian, and I want to um, remind everybody in the audience that if you'd like to uh, submit your question, please look at the um, uh, the chat box function just below your video player on the USIP event page. Let us know who you are and where you're asking from. Uh, and and we'll see some of those questions if we've got time. But, um, you know, Sebastian and Emil, you have uh, you have sort of portrayed a non-homogenous view of these organizations, you know, from the outside world. They are, you know, they are not necessarily pro-democratic or pro-authoritarian. Uh, they may be, you know, um, um, blind to that. Uh, they are not necessarily anti-capitalist or pro-capitalist, um, as is defined in the post-Soviet world. Um, I would probably venture even to say they are not necessarily pro-Western or anti-Western or pro-American or anti-American, which may surprise uh, some people, uh, given the history of the United States relationship with the Muslim world. So, um, you know, to get to the sort of the, the top line 
um, question that was in the implied in the title of, of today's roundtable. Um, how should Western, specifically American, uh, donors go about engaging Muslim civil society in Central Asia? If you were to, divide, to sort of look at a Venn diagram of issue areas in poverty alleviation, development, uh, even you know um, um, democratic development, uh, where would you see the, the opportunities for overlap and the opportunity the, the areas where there's probably not overlap? Uh, Sebastian and Emil, I'll let you. Who, who wants to go first? You want me? I, I yeah. can. Yeah, yeah, sure. I mean. Uh, it's uh, it's a difficult question. I mean, there's no uh, real recipe on how we should uh, cooperate. I mean, uh, let me mention maybe a few uh, brief points. The first uh, and main step, I think, would be to have more dialogues with uh, Muslim civil society organizations that are uh, active in, uh, in Central Asia. I mean, getting to know them uh, is very important. I mean, we need, as I, we say in this report, to disaggregate them and to, uh, and to consider that Muslim civil society is not only uh, the Hezbollah terrier or Salafi movements. And we need to make them understand that we take them, uh, we take them into account, and that we also take their interest uh, into account, their concerned, uh, their culture too. Uh, of course, I mean we might have. Uh, different approaches on some issues, maybe on human rights or women's rights. But at the same time, I mean, we have uh, many common thinking on the risks or even the threats that the region is facing, that Central Asian countries are facing. I mean, uh, including the bad shape of the social welfare, uh, including education, uh, health, food security, poverty, whatever. And this is precisely this underdevelopment that threatens the stability of the region, much more than the so-called threat coming from abroad. And on that, I think there's really an overlap uh, of interest. Uh, so yes, first talking to them, uh, I think is essential. And uh, by the way, one of the main uh, criticisms of on foreign development aid is that local stakeholders are not uh, sufficiently uh, taken into account. I mean, development programs are uh, very often written from abroad without uh, enough consultation with local stakeholders. So in a way, I mean, uh, conducting a strong dialogue with Muslim CSOs would also contribute to uh, uh, change this, uh, this bad image. Uh, regarding, I mean, cooperation, I think uh, this could be, I, I mean, my suggestion, I mean, my colleagues might disagree with me, but my suggestion would be to go case by case. I mean, it would be very difficult to have a general approach, to have a one-size-fits-all approach, which is, by the way, again, one of the main uh, criticisms uh, against uh, foreign aid of, uh, uh, formulated by local stakeholders. Uh, I mean, cooperation should be based on the local context. I mean, this will uh, depend on which Muslim CSOs are present, which are, uh, what are the issues, I mean, social, economic, or whatever, and what local uh, populations are expecting. So this could be, for example, based on the cooperation with one or two Muslim CSO, CSOs, based on what the uh, Muslim civil society organization consider as important, and of course, you know, uh, on top on issues that the foreign donors would agree with. But I think that 
uh, I'm going to stop here, but just um, uh, I think that a much more localized approach is likely to have a bigger impact. I, I think on that, I would join uh, what some uh, development theoreticians like William Easterly said, that we need to stop this one-size-fits-all approach. And uh, this is especially important with a Muslim civil society organizations in Central Asia, which Again, I mean, uh, they are extremely diversified. So I think it's important to cooperate with, with it, not necessarily with all its components, uh, but uh, again, yes, there are many opportunities. Emil, any thoughts? Yes, thank you uh, for your question, Gavin, and thank you, Sebastian, for uh, interesting um, insights. Uh, so my, um, like I would start by saying that I probably wouldn't be overly optimistic about the, the positive perception of the West uh, by um, Muslim civil society organizations. Uh, the perception the perception is quite diverse, right? And it differs, you know, depending on who we talk about, right? So uh, some of the perhaps uh, Islamic NGOs would be on the more pro-Western side. Right, of the spectrum, while uh, many of the locally rooted um, like organizations or community-based um, jamaats um, perhaps would be, I mean, their perception of the West is also very strongly shaped by um, um, Russian propaganda, you know, that is quite strongly present through media in their life. Um, so um, there are like what our research reveals that, it, that there is a very positive perception of the West in regards to the freedom of religion, right? Uh, but there are also negative stereotypes, particularly associated with the role of uh, West in the conflict in the Middle East, and uh, particularly with the kind of promotion of um, liberal values such as um, LGBT rights, um, feminism, etc. So. Um, if uh, we are to ask how to engage with the, uh, for, for the, how can West engage with the Muslim civil society organizations, I would probably start with the thinking and working with the uh, staff in the local international development organizations, right? Because these are the main actors who implement uh, policies on the ground, right? And um, so far, like at, at this moment, like the perspectives of people who work in the international development organizations are um, often, uh, you know, based on uh, this very strong secular position, right? Um, and uh, in many cases, like the stereotypical view of uh, Muslim um, communities as um, conservative, as liberal, as um, Patriarchal, etc. So, unless the view of the local staff, you know, in international development organizations changes, it will be difficult to engage the two communities, right? So, it's basically we're talking about the two um, different groups of actors. Um, and uh, the the second suggestions would be uh, perhaps here yeah, to um, think about uh, specific projects that would aim, you know, and incorporate um, local um, Muslim civil society organizations into the development efforts introduced by Western countries. And also to introduce more funding for such projects, right? Because uh, as you can see, and as we have described, quite a lot of funding comes from um, um, Muslim countries, right? From uh, the um, from Saudi Arabia, Qatar, Kuwait, from Turkey, right? And uh, so obviously, uh, funding does shape uh, the uh, perspectives, right? And so if uh, more Western money comes, you know, and engages with the local civil society, Muslim groups, I think there is more potential uh, for something to come out uh, of that. But I also totally agree with uh, Sebastian that, that we should start with the dialogue. Thank you.
Indira, did you have any thoughts on this? Yes, um, I guess uh, when funding is coming <clears throat> from the Arab or Turkey countries, they have uh, they literally have this um, religious affiliation, meaning that Islam uh, helping to Islam. But when it comes to uh, to support coming from the Western countries, which is more in the light of the human rights, equal support for every religion and others. Um, it's, I guess this will be risk of, um, risk of uh, supporting one religion, supporting uh, one belief uh, in comparison with others. And also I think that we, as you mentioned, we should take into account that uh, as angel overall, civil society overall, the Muslim civil society in Kyrgyzstan also developing. It's going to through its pathways. And um, from my experience working with religious organization, and again, as you mentioned, there are lots of, they are diverse, this uh, Muslim civil society in Kyrgyzstan. It might depend like their views and level of uh, to tolerance or level of being moderate may be different. Uh, but um, as for now, it's more about promoting Islamic values and uh, they are okay with um, being moderate unless it's not contradicts with their uh, values, with their beliefs. And um, I guess, could I, if I would have a time, could I mention with this gender, uh, gender issue, gender case sure. that, ha that happened in Kyrgyzstan when I thought uh, like the role of the religious organization should be high, the Islamic clergy should be high. So the case was in June 2020 when the women in age of 50 was uh, beaten with uh, his uh, by his husband, he uh, put um, uh, car um, tires filled by uh, bricks onto her head, uh, neck, and also pulled the water on her, and were uh, filming all this. And uh, the issue uh, was because she was late, and uh, uh, and this was like a shocking accident in, in Kyrgyzstan, like even for us, uh, taking into account the level of the domestic and gender-based violence. And at the time we were monitoring the social network, seeing what is the reaction of the clergy or what is the reaction of the religious organization. And it was surprising that none of them give some official uh, statement about this. And I'm not saying that this is a religious issue, I'm saying that taking into account the role of an influence that this religious organization have, the tools and platforms that they have through like Juma Namaz, pray, uh, during the pray, um, uh, working with the local locals uh, and taking into account their authority, they could be a great actor. Um, and I guess it's, maybe a good um, this, uh, good issue to be one of the program uh, from your side to come here and do uh, the great actor for the gender-based violence and this is not about like uh, promoting western values but this is something that it, inside of islam none of the religion calls for the violence against women and still like we see this 
Um, there is um, moderate non-faith-based uh, organizations as Mutakalim, as Umma, who are raising these issues, but the traditional one like Muftiyat, Madrasa, Mosque, were more men-concentrated, not. So I guess we have to be aware and understand that there is some risks uh, in, and, and also opportunities in um, in, uh, in integrating and working with them, uh, any religious, uh, religious civil society organization. Thank you. Well, you, you bring up something um, uh, that's a question that we've started to see appear uh, from the audience, which is what, uh, how you think the rise of Muslim civil society uh, will impact specifically the role of women or the position of women uh, in Central Asian society, bearing in mind, of course, that Central Asia doesn't live, you know, um, out in outer space. It is um, right next door to Afghanistan, where we're seeing disturbing trends uh, in the role of women. Um, you know, if do any of you want to take us uh, uh, have a comment on that? Yeah, Emil. Um, yeah. So. Uh... One organization that you're probably very well familiar with, Gavin, is Mutakalim, right? And um, there is no other civil society group that did as much for uh, women, for Muslim women in Kyrgyzstan as Mutakalim and her, the, the leader, uh, Jamal from Bekazi, for the last 25 years, they've been fighting. Now, while, as uh, Indira rightly pointed, um, Muftiyat and other more kind of uh, male, male uh, leaders uh, of Islamic society groups, taking a passive stand. And so I think this is what makes uh, the case uh, and of Kyrgyzstan and of many other Central Asian countries different from Afghanistan, right? This legacy of the Soviet emancipation of women, you know, the uh, more uh, kind of um, it, um, uh, a more feminist, a more like uh, a gender right-based uh, position of Muslim women who are ready to fight for their own uh, rights, who are ready to uh, struggle, you know, for their own um, uh, values. And uh, in that sense, uh, I wouldn't bring the parallel here with Afghanistan, you know, because the case of um, Kyrgyzstan and of Central Asia with 70 years of the Soviet um, uh, female emancipation has a strong effect on how women perceive themselves in the um, uh, society in general, and also the way they look at their own Islamic roles um, in uh, these organizations. Paul Washa. Yeah, thank you. I think that distinction is important, uh, as well as what I'd mentioned earlier in terms of the role that international movements and, and, and countries have played in Central Asia versus how they've played the role in Afghanistan with the international jihadi movement uh, that was very much grounded and started in that area in, between Afghanistan and Pakistan that uh, led to the explosion of so many different um, brand, jihadist brands that are related to the Salafi uh, movement, the Wahhabi movement, Al-Qaeda, all of those pieces that are there, uh, which is different. Although they do have strands and relationships into Central Asia, it is not as strong as you see in Afghanistan, of course. Um, I think the other key here to mention uh, is um, 
you know, in uh, uh, the, the roles that the Uzbekistan government and, and others in Central Asia have had um, in terms of talking about women's rights in Afghanistan. We've seen scholars, we've seen the governments also come out in support of women's rights in Afghanistan, uh, particularly on this issue of education, uh, where, where we saw um, the Uzbekistan government come out uh, and, and the ulama also come out in support of girls' education in Afghanistan, and that's very important. Um, and as we're looking at um, you know, religious scholars and the roles that the really regional scholars and the influence regional scholars can have on women's rights in particular countries and looking at Afghanistan, there is this connection and role that, that um, can support and has been in support of, for example, fatwas against uh, suicide bombings, fatwas against uh, the internal jihad, Muslims killing Muslims, that sort of thing that's come out and that Central Asian scholars have come out in support of. And I think that um, needs to be also understood as part of um, the, the traditional Hanafi school of thought and the role that traditional scholars in the region have. And so, um, although, as you mentioned, Indra, that there, there didn't seem to be a very strong response from the ulama uh, on that particular issue, there has been a movement of ulama organizing on particular issues, and there's potential for that to happen, particularly within um, the more traditional Hanafi schools that are being promoted over Salafi, Wahhabism, you know, international interference uh, on some of the, the topics related to violent extremism in the region. And so there's a potential for, for that to actually blossom. The other thing I wanted to mention is also the work that's being done um, on peaceful masculinities and promoting peaceful masculinities with religious, um, we say religious actors, so not just the clergy, but also uh, uh, those that are considered having influence in the religious sphere, uh, as well as looking at um, as was mentioned, the role of female religious actors in dealing with these situations and the roles that they can play uh, in promoting women's rights in these communities. So I just wanted to mention those those trends and issues there. Um, so here's you know, shifting gears a little bit. Um, uh, although, you know, we have talked about how um, in, in the case of uh, uh, Muta Kalim, they've looked at gender-based violence, they've looked at um, issues where sometimes they may be pushing against retraditionalization of some things that, uh, you know, were bad behaviors seemingly overcome in the, in, during the Soviet Union. But I want to broaden that out a little bit to the question of the other, uh, I would say, in my mind, um, powerful wave of identity uh, in Central Asia over the last uh, maybe 15 years is that of ethnic national identity. Um, it, we, uh, in some ways, uh, you know, a, a Muslim identity uh, uh, cuts across ethnic identities, whether it's Kyrgyz, Uzbek, Tajik, and, and, and Kyrgyz. Um, in some parts of the world, uh, the religious identity and the national identity are synonymous, right? We say, you know, I say Polish, you can say Catholic. I say Sinhalese, you can say Buddhist. I say Indonesian, you can say Muslim. Of course, there are exceptions, but in general, those identities are very closely tied. And um, I'm very curious what our panel thinks about how that the national ethnic identity and the religious identity uh, in Central Asia are reinforcing each other or divergent or in conflict with each other um, based on sort of 
um, the Venn diagram of what uh, Muslim civil society organizations do compared to other um, types of movements. Does anybody want to take a stab at that? Yes, I mean, I can uh, very, yeah, I mean, <clears throat> yeah, I think that uh, religious and ethnic or national identities in Central Asia are connected to some extent. I mean, uh, for example, the government, uh, governments on Central Asia would strongly encourage any, any uh, let's say traditionally Muslim my, uh, nationalities like Uzbek, Kazakhs, or uh, Tajiks to be a Muslim if he's a, a believer, uh, or a Russian to be a Russian Orthodox, or let's say a, for the German minority to be a Catholic uh, or a Protestant Lutheran. And we have, in a way, the same approach uh, with uh, the different religions. I mean, uh, the Muslim leadership would strongly encourage a Kyrgyz or Kazakh to be a Muslim and not to be part of another religion. And we have exactly, by the way, the same approach with uh, some Christian movements. I mean, especially the main ones, the Russian Orthodox Church, who uh, has been strongly uh, encouraging Russians to be uh, Russian Orthodox and uh, really even refusing. Uh, I've seen that. I mean, I've worked a lot on that, but I've seen that some uh, priests uh, in the Russian Orthodox Church refusing to convert some Kazakhs or some Kyrgyz because they were supposed to be Muslims and not uh, and not uh, and not uh, and not uh, Christian. Sorry. Uh, uh, now there there are some uh, of course some uh, some other movements who don't necessarily abide by that. I mean, uh, you have uh, some Protestant movements who are uh, proselytizing a lot, uh, and this has provoked some reactions. I wouldn't say that there are strong tensions between the Muslim and the Christian community, but we have seen some tensions about uh, sometimes conversions, proselytizing activities conducted by uh, by by Protestant. Uh, uh, movements. But uh, so, yes, uh, but in a way, so yes, ethnic and religious minor, uh, identities are connected, but an important point to, to say is that contrary to some uh, Muslim countries or where uh, the, there is an Islamic government, the government, in the, no, no governments in Central Asia uh, is trying to encourage people to convert. I mean, you have perfectly the right uh, to, to be an atheist or at least, I mean, not to uh, not to be a believer and not to be willing to, to practice a religion. So I've never seen in Central Asia, and don't think it's going to happen anytime soon, a government saying, okay, you are Muslim, you are Kazakh, you are Kyrgyz, so you have to be, you have to be Muslim, or you are Russian, so you have to be a, a, an Orthodox. Indira? Emil? Adira? Emil? Okay. Yeah, I agree with Sebastian that there is no direct attempts to convert or um, like there is no uh, direct attempts to convert, but there is a um, indirect ways, like in the structural level, let's say when the, uh, the legislation prohibits proselytism. And it uh, depends, for example, if the evangelical groups proselytizing, this is prohibited. If the Muslim groups proselytizing, it's 
it's not prohibited because they are not proselytizing, they are sharing their knowledge about the Islam and others. So it depends on the, on the angle. Uh, again, I will more focus on the experience of the Kyrgyzstan, but I have heard that this is uh, true for the Tajikistan and Uzbekistan as well. So the main um, conflict uh, is not between the Christian and Muslims, not between the Christian and like Protestants, but between Kyrgyz Muslim and Kyrgyz Protestants. And here we have a number of the conflicts, ongoing conflicts. Uh, it's uh, about the burying issues when, um, so the cemeteries in Kyrgyzstan organized uh, in the basis of the relationship, uh, the relatives, like one relatives in the one place. And when, if someone from the family become a Christian, oh, uh, so there is a conflict that this is Muslim cemetery, shouldn't wear it here. There was a number of, um, not number, it's still going on the, uh, when the uh, Kyrgyz uh, Protestant not allowed to be buried in that place. And sometimes it's even like forced to dig up or forced to uh, change their beliefs, uh, and it comes from the society, the majority. And also uh, there is a, uh, there is examples of the direct violence towards uh, this Protestant Kyrgyz when they were beaten or the, um, they were forced to move from their villages. And they are, yes, they're trying to live more in the big cities because it's like these connections are more, uh, not so visible uh, in, the, in the cities. Yeah, thank you. Emil. Just a quick um, jump in. Um, the, on one hand, we do observe the trend towards uh, this overlap of identities where, for example, it is very common to hear, um, if you are Muslim, you should speak Kyrgyz. You know, why are you speaking Russian? Right? But on the other hand, we can see that these identities and national identities are very, very strongly contested, particularly in the space of social media. Uh, one case that was mentioned by Indira, right? That this is like, uh, does Kyrgyz mean that uh, uh, Muslim, you know? And so, what does it mean to be a Kyrgyz Christian? But uh, there is also a lot of contestation over um, um, what religions Kyrgyz uh, follow, and particularly in relation to the way people dress, right? And there is a lot of criticism from secular groups, but also a very strong kind of um, criticism comes from the nationalist uh, Tengrist groups, you know, that promote pre-Islamic religious values uh, that says that, uh, that criticize uh, the current trends as Arabization or Pakistanization of the Kyrgyz community, right? And so this is quite strongly contested, right? So I would say that uh, perhaps um, the contestation is much uh, uh, there is much more evidence towards the contestation than towards the overlap of the identity. Okay, well, we're a little bit over our time, and I want to wrap this up and say thank you uh, to Sebastian and Emil uh, for, for initiating this really um, interesting work. Um, and I want to thank uh, Paul Washa and Indira for uh, bringing a perspective on it. I think we're at the very beginning um, of a process of recognition. I think, you know, some of the things we didn't cover was, um, were how different these different Muslim civil societies are in each country and, you know, it, how, how Tajikistan, Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan, and Kyrgyzstan are different from each other, um, in this development. Um, 
we um, didn't really, uh, I think, delve into um, what what it's going to look like when um, the rest of the world discovers Muslim civil society in Central Asia. You know, is it, it, how does that relate to um, you know the traditional orientations towards Russia and Tatarstan and other Muslim communities in the former Soviet Union versus these outside non-former Soviet uh, connections, including Afghanistan. So there's obviously going to be a lot of room for a follow-on um, report at some point uh, where we watch how this evolves over time, especially given the complex geostrategic situation. So um, on behalf of USIP, I want to thank American University. I want to thank George Washington University uh, for working with us on this. And I want to thank our audience uh, for joining us today and being engaged. And with that, um, uh, have a good day, good evening, good night. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this event. If you'd like to listen to more events or explore our other podcasts, visit usip.org forward slash podcasts.